Father, this morning we gather with hearts filled with joy and wonder at the reality of this great occasion, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully man but fully God, conquering death, hell, and the grave once and for all, authenticating his message, rising to, to live forever. Father, thank you for the resurrection power that we can know today through the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for our Bibles that we open now and receive with anticipation from the Easter story, the message that you have for us. Will you impact our lives, Lord, challenge our thinking, and help us, Lord, to humble our hearts before you, before this risen Christ, and before your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn to John chapter 20 with me this morning. I've chosen to use John's gospel for the account of the resurrection story from which we will receive the message this morning. As you're turning to John chapter 20, and we will read it in a moment in its entirety, I was thinking about a time when I was in about seventh grade, probably going on 13. It was probably the summer that I was 12 years old. I was traveling with my mother and a great aunt. I remember my father was not on this trip, and we had driven some ways, and we stayed with some relatives of my aunt, so I did not know them. They were new to me, and I remember being fascinated with their coffee table. Uh, this particular distant cousin uh, had served for some time as a, as a job in a mortuary, and he had somewhere along the line picked up a casket. And he had made it into a coffee table, and it was a, a felt-covered, um, flat-topped box. And that night, when it came time we spent the night there, I took my blankets and put them on top of that casket and slept on top of that casket because I thought it would be cool to tell all my buddies that I slept on a casket. I remember that um, I was fascinated with his stories of when he worked at the funeral home and he told me that sometimes when they had to transport a, a body any distance or go to a distant cemetery, that on occasion, rarely I take it, but he no doubt embellished for me, um, eager to receive anything he said as truth. Um, he would tell me that when they were together in the hearse and it was empty in the back, on occasion they would pull into a filling station. Now this would have been about 1974 when I'm hearing the story, so it was before that when there was still something that we don't know about anymore. That's full service gas stations. And he told me with great um, uh, embellishment, I'm sure, about one of them would crawl in the back and draw the curtains on the hearse. These are the days of the great finned Cadillac hearses, and they would have the service station attendant pumping gas, and then they would quick sit up and pull the curtains back, and, and uh, as I remember the story, he ran off never to collect their money, and on it goes. I'm sure they had great fun. Most of the time, though, we don't like hearses, do we? And we don't like caskets, and we don't like funeral homes, and we don't like cemeteries. Today we have a, a story that begins in the graveyard and it begins in a very incredible, very emotional, uh, a very picturesque, powerful moment at Golgotha with our precious Lord Jesus on the cross, beaten and battered and bruised, surrounded by Roman soldiers armed to the teeth, a screaming crowd, 
gnashing their teeth, and those closest to Jesus stood there and watched their world crumble in front of their eyes. That's where our story begins today, but it ends. It ends at the cemetery, but what a great story it is. Amen? As we have a risen Lord. Let's read John's account, and let's try to draw from this great, no doubt familiar story to many of you, but let's try to draw from it. As we read John's account, I will be reading you. Follow along in God's Word, please. We'll read the entire chapter 20 of John's Gospel. I want you to to notice as we read, if you can see if you can pick out the different characters represented in John's account. Verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Verse 10, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. What a story, huh? And wouldn't you have loved to have been there? You've been to the funerals. You've been beside the caskets. You know what it is to lose a loved one. I want you to keep a couple things in mind as we now break this down and we look at really five different parties that are represented in this passage. There are four key players that make up the drama of John chapter 20 and the fifth party you'll see represents us. But we're represented in this story as well. I want you to realize that as this is written by John, this is John the Beloved. You might flip the page to chapter 21 and and you'll notice that Peter, in John 21, verse 30, when Jesus was restoring Peter to fellowship, we'll talk a little bit more about his falling away. You remember it well, I'm sure. But this is on the beach, that, uh, the, and Jesus has come to his disciples. In John 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? We know from this account and others that John was very close to his Lord Jesus during, their, during his earthly ministry. He was often, as is okay in Eastern culture, and nothing wrong with it, for he was very close even physically with his Lord. And men, I've seen this in Africa, in Malawi, in a similar type, Eastern culture. Men will sit, for example, on the lawn waiting for a lunch uh, line at a church picnic. And men will sit there leaning hard against each other on their shoulders or even sitting next to each other holding hands as they visit. And, it's, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, in their culture, it's an acceptable form of, of friendship and communication. And we know that every time John had a chance, he was close to his Lord. We also find it interesting, at least I do, in chapter 20 as we read this account, that as John writes about himself, he writes in second person. You'll notice when we talk about him in a minute that he, he talks about, um, and the other disciple. It's uh, somewhat of a modest, uh, uh, author's modesty, a little bit of a... Uh, a way of saying himself without saying his own name. And uh, I think it's interesting as we realize what John must have experienced. Do you remember where John was right be at the point of the crucifixion? John the Beloved stood there with our Lord's mother Mary. And remember our Lord's words from the cross as he looked down and he said, Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. In a sense, an act of the oldest son calling on his beloved John to take care of his mother. Can you imagine 
how John felt at that moment. I'm sure he felt that with every fabric of manhood within him that he would do all he could to protect and to provide for dear Mary. Can you imagine what it was like for John the Beloved, probably a very young man, maybe 19 years old, very young, standing there watching them after they had beat his Lord, after they had made him carry his cross, falling down, hitting him with the butt of spears, whipping him, bleeding, broken, bashed in, and then nailing him to that cross. You see, we don't experience these kinds of things. Death is very sterile in our culture. We're a very humane people. And don't you miss it for a moment. We've been this way in the United States because we are a Christian nation. In this pagan culture, they were used to death, but how do you get used to watching your friend get beat down and nailed to a cross? No doubt his stomach was tight. He had to, if he was a man at all, be filled with rage on one hand and broken down, caving in in grief on the other hand. Helpless to move in because of the Roman soldiers. Helpless to do a thing about it. And this is the perspective with which John writes. I see four parties, five including us. Let's break it down. We must move along so that we can hear the baptismal testimonies and enjoy the baptism at the end of the service. I want you to see the first character that we find in our story. I've labeled her, and this is not derogatory. This is just the state of mind. A confused woman. A confused woman. We encounter Mary Magdalene first. I want you to notice that it says in verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. We read at the sunrise service this morning Mark's account, and, and in Luke's account as well, it lists that there were three other ladies at least with Mary Magdalene. But all oh, precious Mary Magdalene, she's the one you'll recall whom Jesus had cast out the evil spirits. She's the one who had broken perfume on him. She's the one who had wiped his feet with her hair. She loved her Lord Jesus in no inappropriate way. She knew what it was to have her sin forgiven by this teacher. And there's Mary Magdalene. In the other gospel accounts, it says that after it was day, they showed up. After the daylight came, they showed up. I take it that Mary Magdalene had not slept, perhaps, that she had risen early. She had made her way to the tomb, even ahead of the other ladies. And as it broke day, her friends joined her. But Mary is there, and, and it says that she went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. It says here that she came running then to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John identifying himself. And she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. She's, she's very confused. What is happening here? We'll see here in a moment that she doesn't really realize that there's a resurrection that has taken place yet. Let's pick up her story in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels seated there where Jesus' body had been. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? This is what she says. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. Later, when she sees Jesus, he says, why are you crying? She says, thinking it was the gardener in verse 15, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you put him? 
and I will get him. Here's Mary, bringing the spices, not knowing how she was going to access the body, but in the same way that we might take flowers to a gravesite, these ladies took spices to pro- help with preservation, to cover the odors. It was an act of love and honor on their behalf. And here's these ladies, there first that morning, and she's confused. I don't know what's going on. I know this is the right tomb. I know they put him in here. They, with their own hands, had wrapped him and carried him and stayed close. They knew exactly what had happened. Confused and now what's going on? But I want you to notice something, and it's a common thread throughout the text as well. Jesus says to her in verse 16, because up until this point, I take it that Jesus had, in his glorified body, had a way of holding back his identity. Later, you can read out of, for example, Luke's gospel account, where, do you remember the story following, in the afternoon of the resurrection, where he was on what we call the road to Emmaus, and there were two disciples, evidently not those closest to Jesus, and these two disciples were walking, and Jesus joined them, remember, and he asked, what's going on around Jerusalem? What's up? And And they're like, they stop, and they're like, What do you mean? You don't know what's going on around Jerusalem? How could you miss the story? And they go on their way. Jesus joins them, and he begins to dialogue and discourse and talk with them and even begins to explain from Moses and the prophets forward and through the Psalms why this had to be the way it was. And the whole time, they didn't even know they were talking to Jesus. I would assume that they had been in the audience with Jesus many times in his earthly ministry. When they get to their house, it was a seven-mile walk on the road to Emmaus to their, to their home. They sit down, they invite him in, he sits down, he breaks bread, and it says, and he revealed himself to them. I take it in a similar way, he revealed himself to Mary at this point. I don't know exactly what a glorified body is quite like. I take it that Jesus had some of the same distinct features. This is the closest we know of what our glorified body will be someday at the resurrection of our bodies. Yes, there will be a physical, literal resurrection, the Bible teaches, of the dead in Christ. And God will reassemble our dead, decayed bodies to meet our spirit in the air, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And we will have a body that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is unlike this earthly body, it's a heavenly body. There's different kinds of bodies. And this one that is sown in destruction and in devastation and in sin and decay will rise incorruptible. And we'll have some kind of a body like this body. I don't know what it's, what it's like exactly. And he reveals himself, he reveals himself to, to Mary. But she's confused until what? Until he opens her eyes and look what happens. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He tells her not to touch her because he had not ascended to his father. Later, he lets them touch him. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples, verse 18, with the news, I have seen the Lord. Listen, when she saw the Lord, it changed everything, didn't it? Do you think you could have talked her out of what she had seen at that point? Absolutely not. She knew who she had seen. She had seen the Lord. She goes from being a confused woman to being a firmly convinced woman that this is the Christ. Her faith was cemented by her sight. 
Let's move on in our story, and we have two curious men. I think it's interesting if you flip, you don't have to flip there for sake of time, but when the women come to tell, in Luke's account, it says that uh, when they came back from the tomb and they told all these things to the 11 men, uh, the ladies did, it says they told them to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. That's what Luke records for us. So when the women had gone back and said, hey, the tomb is empty, and we've seen the, their words were like nonsense. He, what are they saying? And so Peter and John get up and run. Notice here now we have two curious men. We move from a confused woman to two curious men. So Peter, verse 3, and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He's younger, old, big old fisherman Peter, he goes lumbering down the trail, and John beat him. He looks, bend in, bends over, looks in, but Simon Peter's the one when he finally gets there, and kind of picture him huffing and puffing. He steps right in the tomb to try to figure it out. They saw the linen, the burial cloth that had been around his head, the cloth folded by itself, separate. Then John says again, finally, the other disciple, and for a second time, he says, who had reached the tomb first, I take it that in his subtle way, he's kind of proud of the fact that he outran Peter. I don't know, he said it twice. But notice what it says then. When the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, look what it says. He saw and he believed. Now, I don't think, based on this passage and even the parenthetical thought that follows and the other parallel passages, that he totally comprehended yet what was happening. He certainly believed that the tomb was empty. And I like to think that his mind began to put things together now. John the Beloved, who had held to every word of his Lord, through his sight, his faith was being confirmed. He could see Jesus, so his belief follows his sight. Think about Peter, what's going through his mind right now. You remember Peter's story when we last left him, right? Oh, just think three days earlier, the Passover meal. You're going to betray me three times. Lord, I will never betray you. That's not in me to betray my Lord. He puts on a little bit of a front, whips out his sword up in the garden when they come to arrest him, whips the, whips the ear off of Caiaphas' servant. I, I can, for the life of me, wonder what they were thinking about when Jesus picked that ear up, blew it off, and stuck it back on. Did they think they didn't see what they just saw? But you remember Peter, right? In fact, not only did Judas betray our Lord and run from him, not only did Peter, but it says that all of them deserted him that night, didn't it? But oh, Peter's story is so striking, isn't it? Hey, you're one of those guys with Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know no Jesus. Cock a doodle doo. Might have been a real rooster. Might have been, they say, at the temple guard that they blew a horn to signal the changing of guards. I have no problem believing that there was roosters running around Jerusalem and that a stray dog went after one right then. And I don't know. A little while later. Hey, hey you, bud, hey. You're one of them with Jesus. I want to tell you something, buddy. I don't know nothing about Jesus. I don't know Jesus. I don't have anything to do with Jesus. 
And then big man Peter with this intimidating little girl then finally. Ah, your speech betrays, you have an accent. You're from Gal. You're one of the Jesus followers. I swear on my mother's dead body, I don't know Jesus. And that time, remember, he turned and their eyes met. And the last time Peter saw Jesus before he was on the cross, probably, was when that third rooster crowed in his third denial and their eyes met. Don't you think Peter had to hate himself by now? Don't you think Peter is just like, why? You know, he was so emasculated. He was so wrong. He was so weak. He had caved in. He had capitulated to his own weak flesh. So angry with himself. And then they watched him crucify his Lord. And then when the women came and said, the tomb is empty. That's nonsense. But he's running as fast as he can. Peter steps in. It has to begin. His sight begins to affirm his faith at this point, doesn't it? We move from a confused woman to a curious man to a room full of cowardly men. Number three, notice in the story in John chapter 20, and on the evening of the first day of the week, so this is just a day later when the disciples were together with the doors locked, 20 verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed. What is the next phrase? When they saw the Lord, their faith was built upon their sight, wasn't it? They could see the Lord. They believed the Lord. They could touch him. A, group, a room full of cowardly men hiding there because they were afraid they were next to get butchered. But now it all changes, doesn't it? Because they see, they believe. We move from a room full of cowardly men who are now becoming convinced, a confused woman who becomes convinced, a curious man who becomes convinced, a cowardly group of men who become convinced because of their sight, because of what they're seeing. We encounter now a very cautious man, a very cautious man, and this is Thomas. You know him well, don't you? Now Thomas called Didymus, verse 24, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have, look at the phrase, there it is, we've seen the Lord. I've seen him, man. I know it's true. Doesn't matter what anybody says, I've seen him. It's real. And can you imagine the emotional swing that these guys had been in? The, the confidence that starts to grow in them little by little. The message is true. The message is true. He really is the Messiah. He is the Lord. But Thomas does what you and I would do. You guys are out of your ever-loving mind. There is no such thing as a dead man coming walking out of here. It doesn't happen, buddy. Does not happen. And he says, unless I do what? Unless I see him with my own eyes and touch him with my own hands, I don't believe anything. A lot of people like Thomas nowadays isn't there, aren't there. Look what happens. A week later, verse 26, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them right into the room. It's pretty neat. I don't know if our glorified bodies will do that or not. I kind of think maybe they will. Pretty neat, huh? Okay. 
And Thomas said to him, where Jesus says, Peace be with you, shalom. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe, Thomas. You don't accept it by faith. You don't think the scriptures are fulfilled in and of themselves, that it's true. And because the scripture says it, it had to happen. It can't not happen when the scriptures say it. And it happened. But put your hand on me, touch my body, and now you know. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Wow. It's you, Jesus. I can't believe it. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. There it is. It is faith that is built upon a sight. Are you envious of that? Don't you wish you had the sight so that you could build on the faith? But notice what our Lord's next words are as he introduces the final group of people. It's the challenged reader. The reader is now challenged to become convinced, not by sight, but by faith. Look what it says. Verse 29 again. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus now is reversing it and he says... I'm calling out to a group of people who don't get to see first. I want you to believe first and your faith will one day be affirmed by sight. Your faith is not affirmed by your sight now. You don't build your faith on your sight. Your sight will come following your faith. That's us. We've not seen Jesus in the flesh. We can't go touch him. Now think about this group of cowardly men. Think about these people. Every one of them become totally convinced. They move from confused and curious and cowardly to cautious to convinced because they could see and touch him. And then they're given a mandate. Their job is to go preach this gospel. Their job is to go proclaim to an unresponsive world, to a world that hates the cross, a world which says the preaching of the cross is moronic, foolish, their job is to go preach this gospel and to proclaim, let me tell you that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There is no wiggle room in that verse. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes unto the Father but by me, there's no wiggle room. It is an exclusive gospel. It is purely an exclusive gospel. And it is all based upon one reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the one who in and of himself, along with the working of the Holy Spirit, in fact, the word tells us clearly that all three members of the Godhead are involved in the resurrection. God raised him from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. And the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. He could not stay dead. A, because he was God. B, because the scripture said he was going to rise again. If the scriptures say it, it's going to happen. That's what I said last week. If he says he's coming again in the sky, the Bible says it, guess what? It's going to happen. You can't change it. Nobody can change it. 
Because the scriptures will come true, as we see in the first coming of Christ. Notice what these men are charged with now. They are charged with communicating this gospel, and notice what they say. Let's just use John as our example. If you are the best friend of Jesus, you are closest to Jesus, you are charged with protecting and taking care of and providing for his mother, you are there at the crucifixion, you are then there at the resurrection, you are there in the upper room, you touched his body, and now you go from being a coward to giving your life for this gospel, and all of the apostles and disciples did, murdered and brains beat in and heads chopped off for this gospel. There's no way they stole the body and hid it. You don't give your life up for something like that. You produce that body in a hurry when someone's coming at you with a fuller's club like they bashed Andrew's brains in. John was dropped in oil and boiled, tradition says. Exiled at Patmos for a gospel that he didn't know is true? Absolutely not. He saw, he knew, and now his job is to record this for all generations to come. What is John going to write? What would you write? What would you write to convince your friends that this is a true gospel, that I was there, that I saw it? One thing you do is you tell how it happened. You write it down and you say how it happened. There was this confused woman and she saw the Lord. And there was these curious men. I was one of them. I ran faster than Peter. Did I tell you that I ran faster than Peter? And we saw the Lord. And then we were a bunch of cowardly men and we saw the Lord. And there was this cautious guy, Thomas, and he saw the Lord. But I want you to catch a nuance here. Look at verse 30. It says that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is it that John says is written so that we will believe today without sight? so that we will accept the message by faith and not by sight? The miracles that he records. You want to believe in Jesus? All I, I can't logic you into heaven. I can't logic too many things. Now, the, the resurrection gives us a, a foot of logic to stand on. For example, Sun Myung Moon, when he dies, he will not rise again from the grave. But Jesus did. Muhammad did not rise from the dead. Jesus did. Jesus alone was God. So there is a logic there. But I want to tell you something. I cannot prove to you by your sight that Jesus was the Christ today. All I have is the record, the historical account of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John said, Jesus did many miraculous acts and these are written, these miracles, these in verse 31, goes right back to the word miracles in verse 30. And he said, I wrote these down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you will have life in his name. Why does John point to the miracles? Let's think about what the miracles entailed. We'll not take time to look them up. They're there. They're obvious. You'll recall. How many times did Jesus look at somebody and cast demons out of them? What are the miracles of casting out demons? What did that prove? That he had power over Satan. Repeatedly he showed his power over Satan and the demons. How many times did Jesus go up to somebody sick, even lame from birth? That pitiful woman with the issue of blood, how miserable her existence must have been. And touching his garment, she's healed. The lame man could walk, the blind man could see. 
Peter's mother-in-law with a fever, instantly healed, rises out of her bed and starts serving them lunch. What, what does that prove when we read these stories of Jesus? Not only did he have power over Satan, he had power over sickness. And we read on, how many times did Jesus encounter the natural wonders of the world, the natural world around us, rather? For example, casting their net on the other side of the boat and catching fish, breaking bread and feeding thousands of people with a little boy's lunch, walking on the water, speaking a word and calming the sea. He had power over nature. He had power over the sea. And how many times did he look at somebody and say, your sin is forgiven? He had power over sin. He could transform the life of a sinner with a word. That's what John's saying. You want to believe in who Jesus is? Here's his account of his resurrection. But these are written, these miracles are written so that you will believe what? Believe what? Believe that he had power over Satan, power over sickness, power over the sea, power over sin, power to transform a sinner's life. That's our Lord Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he did. I wonder if you believe today that Jesus is the Christ. Do you see yourself in the story at all? Are you just curious? Are you convinced? Are you a skeptic? Or are you convinced? I can't produce a body today. No, I cannot. But I want to say there's an experience that these guys cannot experience that we will. More blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. Why? What's it going to be like to shut your eyes on this side and open your eyes in the presence of your Lord Jesus? And all that was believed and held onto by faith alone becomes the reality of sight. Wow. I suspect at Hagerstown Bible's church this morning, there's tears flowing. There's one of their, it's not as big of a church as we are. It's one of their young men is at the morgue. And Tuesday they will gather for a funeral, a memorial service. And Brother Dale is preaching resurrection truth today. You know, it's because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that Leroy and his wife will sit in church if they went today and they don't have to sorrow as those who have no hope because as we've already sung, death and hell and the grave have been conquered. Do you believe it? Will you take it by faith? Someday your faith will become sight. If you're not convinced, read about who he is in the book. That's the best I can offer you because that's what John tells me. You want to believe? These are written so that you will believe and then have life. Let's bow in prayer, please. In a moment, you're going to hear some testimonies of six children and one adult who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they're going to proclaim Christ publicly and enter the waters of baptism. I wonder if you've ever proclaimed Christ. I wonder if you've ever admitted that you're a sinner. I wonder if the Spirit of God pulls at your heart and points to the reality that he is who he says he is. And you know that Jesus had power over Satan and sickness and the sea and sin and sinners. And that it is no wonder that he rose from the dead because he's God in the flesh. My friend, don't miss this window of opportunity this Easter morning to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, 
And if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Your sin, for which you could do nothing on your own. But he went to that cross and became sin for you. Sealed our pardon by rising again on Sunday morning. Will you admit that you're a sinner today and believe that Jesus is the Christ and go from being a caustic doubter to a beloved child of God today? You could pray something like this, even in this moment. Father, today I recognize that Jesus is the Christ and that I am a sinner and I accept your free gift of his salvation, that he shed his blood for my sin. I believe that. Wash me whiter than snow. You'll become his child. It's as simple as just reaching out and receiving a free gift. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You just take it. And so, Father, we thank you so much for what it means to, to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and what you've done through Christ for us, through us, through him for us. And, Father, I pray that you would draw people unto yourself this morning. Bless these young people and Terry as they share their testimonies. Thank you for this great picture of transformation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. Father, if there's any seekers here today or any skeptics, may your Holy Spirit pull at their hearts and may they see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory, triumphant over Satan and sin and sickness and triumphant over death in the grave. It's in Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving, looking for our future with you when our faith will become sight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.